In our last series, we preached 1 Thessalonians, a book that lifts up the faith, love, discipleship, and leadership of that great church. 1 Thessalonians also touched on the subjects of death and the end times and how we should live to be ready for them. 2 Thessalonians now expands that study into an intense look, first at Judgment Day, then the one the Apostle calls the man of sin and the work of Satan. Once again, Paul brings home the real point. Knowing the end should inspire us to clean up our acts, to grow spiritually, to obey God, and to endure in faith until he comes again. Second chapter of, of um, Second Thessalonians. Very, very brief book. And it's an interesting book to me because an issue that Paul tried to put to rest in First Thessalonians, the issue of the day of the Lord and of death itself, he treats it longer in First Thessalonians than in any other book that he wrote in the New Testament. And yet what's clear is that this issue that was disturbing the church was continuing to disturb the church. And so a matter of only a few months after sending the first letter, he writes the second letter to try to help the people relax and to find a sense of peace about the doctrine of the Lord as we look to eternity. That really is kind of the name that we selected for the whole book, that Second Thessalonians is a challenge to us to look to eternity. In the first chapter, he talked about the judgment of God. And many of us, when we think about the judgment of God on the day of the Lord, can experience that with a sense of fear. And yet, what Paul tells the Thessalonians is that the very trouble that they are going through as Christians is testimony that they will be able to stand boldly and confidently before God on the day of judgment, and that those who are causing them trouble, who are persecuting them, they will actually experience God's wrath on that day, that God is going to set the books right on that day, that they will be brought into the glory and the presence of God. In chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, he talks in more detail than we've seen before about what's going to happen when. And it's the kind of thing that people love to make movies about and religious scholars love to speculate about that people who think they're going to calculate when the last day will come love to pick out passages of Scripture and use their calculator and start trying to count how many days, how many years it's going to take before the day of the Lord arrives. If you Google sometimes um, the number of prophecies that have been made or calculated about the end of the world, you're going to find out that there has been a constant series of them ever since the first years of the church. Um, you may be interested to know that the Jehovah's Witnesses right now hold the record for the most failed predictions of the end of the world. They've predicted the end of the world 14 times, and I guess they're still um, working on it. Paul speaks to the Christians beginning in chapter 2 and says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, look at that emphasis for Paul. When he thinks about the day of the Lord, one of the things that's the very first thing he thinks of is things I don't see in the movies that I don't hear people talk about. And that is that when Paul thinks about the coming of the Lord, he thinks about the fact that we're going to be gathered to Jesus. This is a big deal. We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. 
Now, when you see the word coming in the New Testament, when it's talking about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the second coming, very often, and I mentioned this word last week when we were looking at chapter 1, very often the word in the original text for that coming is the word parousia, or if we pronounce it the way they pronounce it in Greek, parousia. The parousia or the parousia is the victory procession, the victory parade, the victory celebration of Jesus Christ. I wish the word coming could carry that language. There were laws and rules for conquerors in the time that the New Testament was written. There were all kinds of rules about how that could be done and how it couldn't be done. Julius Caesar, after he conquered ancient France, northern Italy and ancient France, the part of the world that uh, they called Gaul at that time, after he performed that conquest, it took a few years actually to get his parousia set up. But he finally got the parousia set up, and he entered Rome with a gigantic procession. It was a very special deal. The conqueror rode in a four-horse chariot, which was not a typical chariot. It was the kind of chariot that they used when they made statues of the gods. At the time that Julius Caesar did it, they were allowed to wear purple, which was a color which in the beginning, during the Republic, was only used for the gods, for statues of the deities. But on that day, the conqueror would dress in purple as he entered the city in the four-horse chariot. Rome in the early days, in the Republic, was very, very clear and strong about the difference between military power and civilian political power. Armies were not allowed to be brought into the city because the distinction between military power and political civilian power were clearly maintained to protect the government of the Republic. But on that one day of the parousia, it was the one day where the conqueror held both powers at the highest level. And of course, he was expected to give it back. It took Julius Caesar a long time to give it back. But what I want, the, the reason that I spent that time talking to you about what this word means is because I, I want you to think what Paul, who was a Roman citizen, what must have been going through his mind when he chooses this word, parousia, to talk about the return of Jesus Christ, who is coming back as God in the sky, dressed in glory, holding all authority, declaring his victory over the enemies of the state. Jesus has conquered death. Jesus has conquered sin. Jesus has conquered the evil one. And he will be coming back as our God. And we will be gathered to him. Now, this is massively encouraging to us, especially as our world looks dark to us. But I want you to notice in verse 2 that Paul is concerned that the Thessalonians have been shaken up recently. They've been disturbed. This word quickly shaken is a, is a very poetic word because it refers to what trees look like in a hurricane. <laughs> and you know, people can get like that. We can get like that when we hear something that's very disturbing. 
I urge you not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us. Somebody has, has misquoted Paul in this church. Somebody has said something that they claimed that Paul had said. And he had not. Seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. There are cults around that have tried to say that. That Jesus actually has come back to earth, but it happened over here in a corner where nobody saw him. Or it happened here in an environment where there's almost no record left. The Mormons, for example, have claimed that, that Jesus came to North America. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses claimed that he came back to earth in 1914. They really had to do that to get their, their math to work out, their calculations. But Jesus is very clear in Matthew chapter 24, which is the longest extensive discussion of the end of the world that Jesus ever gives us. He says, if someone comes to you and says, here he is over here in this desert place, or here he is in this hidden spot, do not believe them. Don't believe them. Because when I come back, it's not going to be like that. When I come back, it's going to be like lightning from the eastern side of the sky to the western side of the sky. And the nations of the earth will mourn greatest day in all of creation and most of the earth will grieve when it happens so Paul has been misquoted and I want to pause here to say something kind of obvious to say in church but not obvious to say every other hour of the week when you're out from church I want you to notice that it makes a difference what you believe I want you to notice that not all religious truths are created equal. There is a difference. And see, this is actually a radical and politically incorrect thing to say in our nation now. There are things that are religiously true. And there are things that are religiously untrue. There actually is a connection between truth and fact. fact. Jesus came out of the tomb alive, resurrected from the dead. Fact. The truth related to that fact. There is life after death, and you can receive it in Jesus Christ. That is religious fact and religious truth, and what you believe makes a difference. We live in a nation where people are fond of saying, well, is it true for you? Well, his religion is true for him. I wish we could say things like that about taxes. These taxes were true for me. I'm sorry, officer. This speed limit was true for me. We live in a nation that loves science, loves documentaries, loves facts. But when it comes to what we believe about God, we make it all unknowable and we make it all relative. That's why Jesus' resurrection from the dead is so incredibly important. Because in space, in time, Jesus walked out of that tomb. And it made a difference in all human religion that suddenly this wasn't just a story to be told or something to be believed in like Santa Claus if you chose to. Let no one deceive you in any way. Paul is saying that there are some religious teachings that will deceive you. There are some religious teachings that will fool you and lead you in the wrong direction. 
Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come. I see beginning in verse 3, Paul starts to make a point. There's actually a sequence of events that is supposed to occur. This is a very, very difficult subject to talk about. The events of the last day. It is my preferred belief that Jesus can come back at any time. That he can come back in any moment. There are good Christians on almost every way of interpreting the scriptures that relate to the last days. And it becomes exceptionally complicated. Because what has now happened is that people have tried to take the texts that relate to the end times from Daniel, from Ezekiel, from Joel, from Zechariah, from 2 Thessalonians, from 1 John, from Matthew 24, and from the entire book of Revelation. And they have attempted to shuffle all of this together and produce a timeline exactly describing what happens next. And we have Paul's statement from the last book that we read, 1 Thessalonians, where in chapter 5, Paul says to us about the times and the seasons, I have no need to write to you because you know perfectly well that the coming of the Lord will be like a thief in the night. There are interpretations of these events that see these things as heavily spiritual realities that the church faces in every generation. Things that Christians have always gone through and will continue to go through until Jesus comes back. And that also resonates for me a lot because the book of Revelation was written to encourage a church that was currently under persecution. I feel like very often when these guys write these books, they forget that those Christians were being killed at that time. And I want to ask them, what difference do you think it makes to Christians in 95 A.D. that 2,000 years later there's going to be a country of Russia and a country of China and they're going to surround Jerusalem, blah, blah, blah. What difference is it going to make to people who are being killed today? Why would you write about that for three chapters and then for 19 chapters write about events that aren't going to happen to them for 2,000 years? Why do we not respect what they're going through and why the letter was sent? See, we obsess about these things. We always have. Nevertheless, despite the fact that I've said all those things to you, Paul says that there is a thing that's going to happen before Jesus comes back. Our question today is, has it happened yet or not? That day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. The rebellion. Now, the Greek word here, our other Greek word for the day, is the word apostasy which means falling away, becoming apostate, means that you have left the faith. Now, the scholarly argument around this apostasy is, are we talking about a situation where the world has, to a large degree, decided they're not going to believe in God anymore? Or... Are we talking about the church of Jesus Christ where a lot of the people of Jesus' own church fall away and are no longer faithful? Which of the two is it? The funny thing is, most scholars are inclined to say yes. It looks like both are probably happening here with the world turning away even more from God and where even large chunks of the church fall away and cease being faithful. There is a rebellion to come. And then we have this person revealed, the man 
of lawlessness. A being called the man of lawlessness. A person who represents the idea that God has no rule over my life. He has no control over my life. Lawless means you don't recognize any boundaries. There is no right and wrong. You can do what you wish. Man of lawlessness. And then he is called the son of, the old English Bible called him the son of perdition. Here we have the newer word, the son of destruction. Well, when we hear this, the word that jumps immediately into our consciousness is the word Antichrist. Paul must be talking here about the Antichrist. Even that very statement is complicated. Did you know that the word Antichrist does not appear in the book of Revelation? Not a single time. The word Antichrist does not appear in the book of Revelation. What we read about in the book of Revelation is a series of three beasts. A beast that comes up from the sea. And a prophet. An unholy prophet. And a third beast. We end up with an unholy trinity in the book of Revelation. And some people associate the man of lawlessness with the one, the pre-beast, called a prophet. The part that complicates this is that in 1 John, the Apostle John, who also wrote the book of Revelation, says, I know that many of you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. I tell you, even now, many Antichrists have already come. And so it's John himself who wrote Revelation who lets us know that there's kind of a persistent thing happening spiritually in the world. And yet it does sound like that Paul is being very distinct about this person, this man of lawlessness, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. Hear that? <laughs> the man of lawlessness is creating the ultimate secular society where anything that is set up as God is taken off that throne. And all things religious are put aside. You see anything like that in our world? So that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, there have been some interesting occasions where this has been literally true. In about 160 B.C., a Syrian ruler named Antiochus III, actually put himself over the Jewish temple, put up an altar to himself, covered the temple with pig parts to defile it. Later, the Roman emperor, who was nicknamed Caligula, ordered a statue of himself set up in the temple. And the local rulers in Jerusalem knew that as soon as they would do that, it would create riots among the Jews. So they kept dawdling and not doing it and not doing it. And it only took Caligula's only guards four years to kill him. He was an emperor nobody wanted. So this has literally been true at times in the past. But Paul is looking forward to this day when Jesus comes back. And then he says, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Paul is writing a letter to these people to help them relax, and he's saying to them, you need to remember what I told you before about this stuff. And you know what? That's a really important word for you and me because the places where we get in trouble are not complicated, are they? They have to do with the very basic things that we need to remember. Faith, love, focus on Jesus coming back, purity, not lying, <laughs> being nice, you know? Sometimes it's almost like that wonderful book, Everything I Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. That can be very true of the Christian faith. I don't end up in trouble because of deeply complex spiritual realities. I end up in trouble because the very basic stuff that I knew, I'm letting get cold and I'm drifting away from. 
Spend time with God. Read your Bible. Talk nice to your spouse. Be good to your kids. You know, stuff like that. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? That's why we can all encourage each other. We all know enough about the gospel to act as priests for one another and encourage each other to be with each other what we need to be. And you know, he goes on about this man of sin, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. You know, God puts evil on a leash. Even as much evil as there is in the world, he doesn't allow it to do everything it would be inclined to do. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Okay. Talking about the man of lawlessness is going to be revealed, but here in 51 A.D. when he writes his letter, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. What, what is the mystery of lawlessness? Well, the, the thing to know about the word mystery in the New Testament is that the word mystery always refers to something we didn't used to know but it has now been revealed. We hadn't used to heard anything about this. Paul calls uh, the mystery of Christ in you, which is the hope of glory. You know, back when, before Jesus was born, nobody knew how that relationship with God in the New Testament was going to be made. Now it's been revealed to us, so he uses the word mystery for it. The thing that was unknown is now known. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. This leader of this completely secular world who sets himself up. Paul doesn't spend a lot of time talking about the nitty-gritty details about everything that will happen. He just simply says that the lawless one will be revealed and then Jesus will kill him. <laughs> the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. You know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of Revelation 19 where it talks about Jesus arriving white horse wearing a robe dipped in blood, signed with the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and the whole world is set against him. And he has this sharp sword which proceeds from his mouth. And the battle is instantly over. It's, it's not a contest. It's not a, it's not a great struggle. Jesus says, you lose. And it's done. End of it. Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance or manifestation. The word here, appearance, is literally the Greek word epiphany. He will suddenly be made manifest. He will suddenly be revealed of his parousia, of his coming. It's bigger than the moment. When Yoda walked into the Senate chamber when the emperor was there. I was in the theater. <laughs> I was in the theater when the emperor was sure he had gotten away with everything. And then Yoda strolls into the Senate chamber and everybody goes, Uh-oh, <laughs> you're in trouble now, boy. It's going to be bigger than that. When Jesus' victory parade arrives, the devil is done. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. You'd be surprised how seldom the word Satan actually occurs in the Bible. It's much more infrequent than you would expect. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with, and this is spooky, with all power and false signs and wonders, and all wicked deception for whom? For those who are perishing. Now what is spooky to me about this 
is that if you are not reading your Bible, if you don't remember what is true and what is not true, if you don't know who Jesus is and what he is asking for in your life, and notice I said, if you don't know who Jesus is, not if you don't know about who Jesus is. We all know about who Jesus is. We know about him. But there's a difference between knowing about and knowing him. Jesus says in John 17, as I've mentioned before, that holy life, eternal life, is to know him and his Father. That's eternal life. It's John 17, verse 3. This is eternal life that they know you, God, and your Son, Jesus, whom you have sent. So the thing that is scary here is that people are going to see what Satan is doing, and it's going to cause them to believe. They're going to be deceived. Why? Because they don't know and live in the Word of God. They don't know Him. Because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. I want you to see the connection between loving the truth and being saved. You know, you would think everybody would love the truth. But it's not true. I've run into many, many people in my life who, when they see truth, they say, do I like this? I don't think I like this. Or when they see the truth, they feel embarrassed by it. People who are truth seekers don't care if it makes them feel bad. Don't care if it makes them look bad. Don't care if it embarrasses them. They know that there is nothing that you can do against the truth. But there are people who are so locked up in their own heads and their own feelings that they aren't free to engage the truth because it hurts. There's a connection between loving truth and salvation. There's a connection between loving truth and loving God. And when someone does not love the truth, it says here God sends them a strong delusion. Check it out. So that they may believe what is false. We don't expect God to work like this. But the reality is that idolatry, that faithlessness, actually becomes its own punishment. There's a wonderful story. We don't have time to read it but I want to encourage you to read it when you get a chance. 1 Kings chapter 21, there's this amazing story where the Judean king Jehoshaphat is sitting in the Israeli court, the northern Israel court of the terribly evil king named Ahab. And they're getting ready to go to war. And Ahab has brought in all of his favorite prophets and said, will we prosper on the battlefield? And all the prophets say, yes, 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 go to war, you will win. And Jehoshaphat's looking all around the room. He can't find a single prophet there of Yahweh, Jehovah God. They're all different prophets of Baal. Why? Because Ahab was married to Jezebel, one of the most wicked women in the Bible, a, a deeply devoted Baalist worshiper from Syria. And she had filled Ahab's court, manipulated Ahab. Jehoshaphat says, don't we have one prophet from Yahweh that we can ask? And Ahab says, there is one. But he never says anything good about me. Jehoshaphat says, you shouldn't say that. Literally, in the Bible. 1 Kings 21, Jehoshaphat says, you shouldn't talk like that. We should hear him. And so Ahab sends to the jail because that's where Micaiah is. One of my favorite characters in all the Bible, Micaiah. They pull him out of jail. 
and they ask him the question, will we go and be victorious? And Micaiah goes, go to battle. You'll be victorious. You'll certainly kill them all. And Ahab knows he's making fun of him, knows it. And he slams his fist and says, haven't I told you always to tell me the truth? Cracks me up. Micaiah says, oh, you wanted the truth. Yeah, go to war. You will die, and the dogs will lick your blood out of your chariot. And Ahab, after hearing that prophecy, turns to Jehoshaphat and says, See, didn't I tell you he never says anything good about me? It is a hilarious story. And when Micaiah is giving his prophecy, he says that he saw God speaking to the spirits around him and saying, which of you will be a lying spirit in the mouth of Ahab's prophets so they will all speak with one voice? And one goes, oh, oh, I will. And Yahweh says, go, do. And so, because Ahab was consulting Baalist prophets, God ensured that they would speak to Ahab a unanimous message that was wrong. <laughs> Pay attention and learn. Listening to the idol is its own punishment. <laughs> you follow? Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so they may believe what is false. If you're going to ask this God what to believe, I'm going to make sure you get something worthy of the quality of what you've done. In order that all may be condemned who did not have the truth, did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. You know, that's, that's really sometimes why some people stay secular. Some people stay secular not because they have carefully weighed the options, looking at history, doing work in philosophy, whatever. Some people stay secular just because righteousness is a problem for them. I've had some very, very good friends, people that I really liked, who had made the decision not to come to the Lord because sin was so easy and so available. And they were very honest with me about that, why they weren't interested in coming to God. And so, Paul has responded in chapter 2 with this strong statement, no, the day of the Lord has not happened yet. Jesus has not come back. He's not going to come back in some sneaky, secret way, and you need to remember that I already told you this. Uh, you already heard this from me. So don't get all shook up because somebody gives you a word that they attribute to me but wasn't, wasn't mine. And so as he starts to come toward the end of this little chapter, he says, but we always ought to thank God for you. See, in, this, in these 1 through 12, in these 12 verses, Paul has done all the work on the end times and the man of lawlessness and everything that he feels like is necessary. And that's a good lesson for us. Because the point here is not to understand every single incident that's going to happen at the end of the world. How are the world governments going to be corrupted? We really don't need to know that. We don't need to know every flavor of counterfeit that's out there. We're going to see here what we ought to know. He says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. He really looked as this at this Thessalonian church as being one of the earliest churches that's almost purely Gentile. There are some Jews here, but not a lot. The Jews in Thessalonica are mainly beating these people up. As the first fruits to be saved, please notice very carefully verse 13 here, because I want you to see here that there is a connection between being saved and sanctification. Now maybe this statement won't even mean anything to you. But I've heard all kinds of religious teachers saying that sanctification, being holy, 
letting God clean you up is not really part of your salvation. When you make the decision to become a Christian, then you are instantly justified, you are instantly saved. Then comes what some religious teachers call a second work of grace, where God will then continue as you are with him to make you cleaner over time. Whenever you hear somebody use an expression that doesn't exist in the Bible, like second work of grace, you should be doubtful. You should be suspicious. You know, some group of teachers call baptism an outward sign of an inward grace. The Bible never says that. Never calls it that. That's a summary statement that doesn't exist in the New Testament. So it should make us suspicious that we're not seeing the whole thing. Here we see, please notice this statement, because this is a powerful statement. And it really pushes back on this idea that sanctification has nothing to do with salvation. When people say that, it's like they're saying unholy people are going to heaven. Really? We always ought to thank God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. We too often think about salvation as a one-moment thing. It totally messes with the idea that salvation is about our living, ongoing relationship with Jesus Christ. To think, I mean, if you compare it to other relationships, the nonsense of it is obvious. It's like making a marriage equal to the wedding day. Doesn't make any sense. For me to be married to my wife requires a day after day after day after day commitment between the two of us. The struggles that we have together, we have to work on together. And we have to work on with a particular view that we are remaining committed to each other in love. And even when there are issues we can't figure out how to solve, the relationship is bigger than the issue. Jesus calls the church the bride of Christ. It is Jesus who compares relationship to God to marriage. When people use the expression plan of salvation, I want to say to them, do you know that the expression plan of salvation does not occur in the New Testament the way you're using it? We know that Jesus is God's plan. He says that. But never in the New Testament do you see a plan of salvation where you have these three, four, five things and you will be saved. I drew up a plan of salvation that had 16 things in it. Because when I looked at the New Testament, I saw all the things that are related to salvation. That should not be a surprise to you. If you were to ask me, Give me the details of the love between you and your wife. It would take me a while to list them all. Our relationship is an organic thing, a rich, ongoing thing with lots of expressions. And so it is with our salvation in Jesus Christ. It is a relationship, not a checklist. It never was a checklist. This is eternal life, that they know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. They know you. (laughs) I tell you, if we think relationally, we'll be a lot smarter about the Bible. It'd be like asking me, what does someone have to do to become your friend? Oh, be my friend. Um, Don't hit me. Um, And try to create, and see, it becomes an idiotic thing right off the bat. Because friendship is not defined that way. It's an organic experience between two persons, just like salvation is. An organic experience between two persons. Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to this he called you through our gospel so that you may... Now, (laughs) Paul blows me away sometimes. 
he writes this thing in verse 14, and I'm not even sure. I, I read this, and I say, Paul, are you sure you're supposed to say that? To this he called you through the gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> I'm sorry, you must have slipped. Me obtain the glory of our Lord. I'm never, I'm never going to have. Really? What about that promise in Revelation that to him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne? That kills me. Fernell and I were talking about that just last week. This image that I have of what it would be like to sit with Jesus on his throne. My little legs dangling over the side of the throne. Oh, it's really high up here. <laughs> Look way down. These clouds are way underneath us. Boy, there's a big chair. <laughs> you know, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Be careful, don't sit on me. <laughs> you know, my gracious, you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't even know how to think about that. That's huge. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold. He uses the expression traditions here, but he's not talking about man-made rules the way we normally think of traditions. He literally says here, hold on to those things that were handed down to you from us. That you were taught by us either by our spoken word or by our letter. Hold on to them. Do not let them go. There is no advanced gospel. There are no secret mysteries of Christianity. There is no occult aspect to this, where if you get advanced enough, you get to come into the secret chamber, we'll give you the, the special secret underwear, and you get to learn the special secret teachings. That's not Christianity. That's something else. That's a lot of something else's. And then he closes with a blessing. Now may our Lord, he is my boss, Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Daddy who loved us and gave us, look at this expression, these are two words you don't find together often. Eternal comfort. He gave us eternal comfort. Anytime you see the word eternal, anytime, please remember, eternal is not just how long it is. Eternal is a statement of quality as well as quantity. It is not only how long the time is, but how big the time is how rich it is, how infinite it is. Eternal comfort, the kind of comfort that God has, He brings to our lives. Who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Wow. I have hope because of God's grace, and it offers us eternal comfort, huge comfort, divine comfort. In the midst of all this lawlessness, in the midst of the lawless one who will set himself up against everything that is called God, in the midst of a world that is going downhill, in the midst of a world that is going to mourn when Jesus comes back, in the midst of hatred of truth, in the midst of a world that hates God, in the midst of all that darkness, there is this light. He who loved us and gave us divine comfort and good hope through His grace, may He comfort your hearts. See the connection between hearing the truth of God's word and having comfort in your heart. He started off in this chapter with a group of people that were being shaken like trees in a hurricane. And by the time we get to the end of it, we can talk about them being comforted. May he comfort your hearts and establish them. Give them a foundation. Give them depth. Give them strength. 
in every good work and word. No matter how evil the darkness is, we still have an opportunity by His power and grace to bring light in how we live and how we speak. This is what we should emphasize when we talk about the end times. This is what is important to know. Endure. Hold on to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Know him. Let his work of sanctification continue in your life. Let him establish you in good works in his name and good words. God bless you. Let's pray for a moment. Father in heaven, we are so distracted. We're distracted by our sin. We are distracted by the sin of others against us. We are often (laughs) pulled in the wrong direction when we think about things like the end times, and we forget what the real focus should be. Help us, Father, to relax in your strength, your comfort, your promise. We thank you for your grace to us. Help us to stand there. In your name, amen.